the Duck Pod. I'm Ryan Thorburn, joined by Austin Meek. Austin, how's it going? I'm in Oklahoma City, and you are presumably in our fancy new uh, studio at the Register Guard. Yeah, I am. We've got the lava lamp lit in your memory. Um, hope you're enjoying yourself in Oklahoma City. Uh, looked like you saw a, a pretty good game from the Oregon softball team in their World Series opener yesterday, knocking off Arizona State. Uh, what were your impressions of the opening game? Well, my impression is that Mike White said it's going to be all about pitching and you're going to have to scratch across a couple <laughs> runs. And they beat Arizona State 11-6, to and it was pretty much home run derby and against two of the best pitchers in the country. So uh, I was a little surprised at you know how fun the game was. It was uh, a lot of long balls, a lot of runs, a lot of tough plays that weren't made in, on defense. Um, so it was the opposite of what Mike White was expecting, but he did expect his team to use their experience. They've been here before. Arizona State's players haven't. Their current players haven't. And uh, and that was the difference. Arizona just Arizona State made too many mistakes, and the Ducks um, always were uh, able to get the big hits when they needed them. So has uh, has Miranda Ellis kind of taken on the role of the uh, the ace on this team? I know they they felt like all season they had two aces with Ellis and Megan Kleist, but uh, three three games in a row now that they've handed the ball to Ellis in the circle. Um, is she sort of now become the uh, the pitcher at the top of the bill for them? Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing because. Uh, Megan Kleist had a spectacular season. Obviously, she was the Pac-12 Pitcher of the Year. She's the first-team All-American. Um, you know, she was you know, the quote-unquote ace all year for Oregon. That was not in question. And then you get to the postseason, she has one bout adding. Now it's Miranda Ellis, Miranda Ellis, Miranda Ellis. And she's earned that. I mean, you got to stay with, with the hot pitcher. And, and she, she actually... You know, fell into a two-zero hole um, against Arizona State, but Oregon's offense was just on fire, so it didn't really matter. Um, Megan did close out the game with the last two innings, um, which Mike White said could be a blessing in disguise. So it'll be interesting because they play rival Washington uh, on Friday night in the winners bracket two more teams that know the pitchers inside and out so uh, I, I would expect them to use both pitchers you know in every game uh, unless one's really rolling yeah you know it was interesting I did a I did a column in the middle of the season looking back at Oregon's postseason results since 2015 uh, and this was before this year but the Ducks were 16 and 6 in the postseason they were 15 and 2 against teams from outside the Pac-12. They were 1 and 4 against teams from the Pac-12 in the postseason, which is kind of weird because they've really dominated the Pac-12 during the regular season and won the league 5 out of 6 years. How, how 
do they feel about seeing these Pac-12 teams uh, in Oklahoma City? You know, they, they get Washington in their next game. UCLA is on the winner's bracket. How do they feel about seeing these familiar teams in Oklahoma City? Well, I think it, it makes preparation easier because you already have the scouting report memorized. But uh, at the same time, the other team is in the same boat. And in this case against Washington, Washington is really, you know, besides the fact that it's the Women's College World Series and they're playing for national championship, they really want to beat Oregon bad uh, because Oregon swept them in Seattle en route to the uh, Pac-12 championship this year, um, leading into that two-week stretch there, Washington had been number one in the country for most of the season, and then they were swept um, by the Bruins and the Ducks, and that made it pretty much a two-team race. So, uh, in this case, I don't think it helps Oregon, because Washington is so excited to get another shot at them, but uh, overall, I, I think it's like you know the women's basketball in the Pac-12. When they get to the tournament, they're just excited to match up with teams that don't know them. You know, Lexi Bando um, pretty much has trouble getting open against Pac-12 defenses, and they know they can't let her shoot. And then she plays some other team, and they're they're focusing on you know the other star, and all of a sudden she's open again. So uh, I think they would have loved to have played Oklahoma. Uh, and that challenge, I think after the game, they kind of talked a little bit about Oklahoma and didn't mention Washington. Um, and then Washington ends up upsetting Oklahoma, kind of a mild upset, but still an upset. So uh, it'll be interesting. Either the Ducks have their number or Washington's going to get some sweet revenge here in the postseason. When you look at their path to win it all, uh, who do you think is the team out there that would be really scary to them? Well, I don't think – I thought it was Oklahoma just in the sense that they have two aces that have pitched here, you know, many times. I think uh, Paige Parker, who lost yesterday, had been 8-0 in the, in the Women's College World Series. And obviously they have the home crowd, and, and they just, you know, play with such a swagger here. So I thought it would be Oklahoma and them being in Oklahoma's bracket. But now um, – I think it could be a Pac-12 situation where uh, if they do beat Washington, um, I think it could be UCLA in that final championship series. Their old nemesis, um, as you mentioned, they lost um, a Super Regional in Eugene to them a couple years ago. So uh, it could be the year of the Pac-12. So if that's the case, I think UCLA could be their big nemesis. Well, one person we know will be watching is Phil Knight. I uh, I had the chance to sit down with Phil in Beaverton earlier this week to talk about uh, the Hayward Field renovation, among among other subjects. Uh, and I just sort of offhand uh, went through some of the uh, some of the achievements that he's witnessed from an Oregon perspective the last few years, and uh, he interjected quickly to throw in the Oregon softball team. <laughs> so, so we know he's watching. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, one of the more interesting interviews that I think I've ever done. Uh, you, you don't get that call every day, but uh, Phil is is very judicious when he wants to speak and he makes his words count and he certainly had some uh, some strong words about the Hayward Field project and and the criticism and and the controversy surrounding that um, yeah Phil's a little bit on an island here because a lot of people with ties to the Oregon track and field program the Bowerman family the Prefontaine family uh, 
Tinker Hatfield, who's very close with Phil and very close with Nike. A lot of those folks have spoken up to say that they feel like the project is going in the wrong direction, that the East Grandstand should be preserved. But Phil seems pretty adamant that uh, the project is going to proceed as planned. In fact, he said when the bulldozers come in July to take down Hayward Field, he's going to be the most reviled man in Eugene, which is quite a statement coming from Phil Knight. Um, Ryan, did you have any? Uh, did you have a chance to look over that interview and anything that jumped out to you when you read it? Yeah, first I did, and kudos to you and Chris Peach, our photographer, for the whole package. I think it's it's spectacular. It's got to be kind of cool to have you know an American icon like Phil Knight uh, invite you up to Nike to uh, hang out and tell an important story in the history of uh, University of Oregon and and track and field worldwide. So, first of all, great job by you guys. Not only getting the sit down, but you know just the way it all unfolded with. Uh, all of the information he revealed and and the, the photos and, and, you know, if people want to go to our website, you can actually listen to excerpts from the interview with Phil, uh, audio from that. So uh, the whole package is great, first of all. Um, yeah, what stuck out to me is just, I mean, I, I love... Uh, sports history is, is the the tidbit that um, you know the register guard and I think it was 1957 mm-hmm. uh, projected that Oregon would beat Washington by one point uh, in a duel. Was it the Seattle Times projected? You know the Huskies would win by a point, and Phil Knight, young track person on the team, uh, kind of figured that you know if he outperformed his uh, PR that his Ducks would win. So I thought that was a great anecdote, and that kind of speaks to the fact that if anyone should you know, know the history and love the history of the East Grandstand and, and the whole venue, it is Phil Knight. So I just think it's kind of interesting that, you know, that he's gone in the direction of... Uh, the next hundred years instead of preserving the past 100 years. Yeah. And props to our faithful producer, Rob, who is manning the controls and who uh, dug out the actual uh, the actual photocopy of the RG from 1957 and the story we ran on that uh, that dual meet where Phil Knight placed second in the mile. That's quite a quite a find from the archives. It's interesting that Phil Knight as you said, he he as much as anybody is connected to the history of Hayward Field, and yet he has such a drastically different conception of what the future of Hayward Field should look like. And you know, I, I think in some ways Phil has probably always been a little bit ahead of his time. Uh, I, I don't think you achieve the amount of success that he's achieved in his life without looking to the future rather than just looking to the past. Uh, But, you know, there are some people who believe adamantly that this one has gone a little bit too far. And one of those people is is Tinker Hatfield, who who has been also in his own way, absolutely integral to the success and the innovation of Nike and is himself a very creative and forward thinking person. And, you know, the dynamic between those two guys was one of the really interesting parts of the story to me, being able to talk to both of them. Clearly, the, they disagree vehemently about this project. There is no mistaking that. But 
but you can tell that underneath that there's also a really um, a really deep respect that they have for each other I think the the anecdote that really stuck in my mind was the exchange that Tinker Hatfield relayed where he's he's talking to Phil and he says Phil I love you but I'm I'm still mad about this project and Phil says without problems there is no business <laughs> which struck me as being yeah. pr- pretty pretty true it in some ways it's the essence of creativity where you get people who are passionate about ideas and you put them together and they don't always agree and that's in some ways that's the whole story of nike uh but the story of nike and also the you know the story of oregon in a lot of ways is that when there's a disagreement the vision that prevails is usually phil knight's yeah it's, what's interesting about it is there's no chance for everyone, for both sides to say, okay, let's take a deep breath, let's talk about this. I mean, you have the World Championships scheduled for Eugene, Oregon, and in order to, you know, have, you know, a state-of-the-art stadium or even a refurbished Hayward Field, you have to start <laughs> moving dirt immediately. So uh, I think that's what's fascinating, is it's such a big decision and such a... You know, uh, has historic implications. It has implications about the future of track and field in some ways. Um, but it has to be made now. That's that's what's interesting to me. Uh, um, is there anything else you took away from your time with Phil um, besides this? You know soap opera that's going on with the stadium? No, we talked about a few other topics. We talked a little bit about football. We talked about Willie Taggart's uh, departure. I I asked Phil if he tried to convince Willie Taggart to stay. He said he did. Uh, He said Willie told him personally that Florida State was his dream job and he wouldn't have left for any other job. And um, I got the impression that Phil's a pretty big fan of Mario Cristobal, uh, is really impressed with Mario Cristobal's work ethic. Uh, but I also think Phil has a pretty realistic grasp of uh, of where the program's at right now. I, I think you know, he, he alluded to um, all the things that needed attention when Willie Taggart arrived and you know some areas that where Oregon had slipped beyond just what was obvious on the field with that four and eight season. Um, he said Mario's working really hard, working twenty hours a day, but it's it's going to be a big climb to get it back. So I, I don't think uh, I don't think Phil is one of those um, one of those fans who's thinking it it's uh, 10, 11, 12 wins or bust in Mario Cristobal's first year. Uh, I think Phil likes Cristobal, but also is aware that he's got a big job in front of him. Yeah, he absolutely does. I think Mario's in an interesting position because you're right, he has to put his own stamp on this rebuild and and do it right, and it takes time, it takes recruiting. At the same time, you have inherited Justin Herbert and retained Jim Levitt, who we all know wants to be a head coach. So I think their window is kind of now, but overall, you know, you have to build it too. So I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, thanks for checking out the podcast, everybody. We got some cool things in the works audio-wise that hopefully we'll be rolling out uh, over the summer leading up to football when everything, uh, everything gets crazy. So thanks for checking out the podcast, and we will talk to you again soon.